spoiler alert. So one thing that is really that I, I want to impart on anyone who's, uh, you know, writing a book. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Living a Life Through Books, the podcast about everything bookish. I'm your host, Dr. Shanaz Ahmed. Erin is going to join today as my co-host, and we are chatting with fantasy author Christian Sterling. Book three of Gems of Elthana for the Freelance is out now, and it's always such sweet sorrow after finishing a trilogy. The good news is that Christian is planning to do another three-part trilogy of Gems of Elthana as a prequel, and he talks about all of it. There will be spoilers for the main Gems of Elthana trilogy that was just completed. Before I bring up our conversation, I wanted to let you all know that I would appreciate your support of this podcast. Every episode is produced by me, and it's a lot of work, to be honest. So how about buy me a coffee? Go to buymeacoffee.com slash LLTB podcast. Every coffee you buy me helps keep me alert and this podcast going. I'll add the link in the show notes, and I thank you. Okay, now, without further ado, here's our conversation with Christian Sterling. Christian, welcome back to the Living a Life Through Books podcast. Both me and Erin, this time she's, she's my co-host today, we both have been fangirling you majorly. And so after she groveled and begged me to meet you, I said, okay, fine, be my co-host. And here we are. And um, so we're going to talk to you about Gems of Alsana. So I'm going to ask you your first question. You ready? Sure. Yeah. How does it feel? I mean, how does this journey feel? This trilogy being done with this part? It, you know, it feels good. It was there's the thing that happens when you're writing, it's kind of, it's the first trilogy of like nine books. So to kind of sunset this part of the story, it's a big relief because after you write the second one, there's so much hanging out there and you have so much momentum that when you finally get to write the third book and all these things you've been planning for over, like for years now, honestly, to finally get to it, it's like, it's like, it's a relief and there was so much momentum I ended up writing the book in two months like that book was written it was one of my longest books I ever wrote and I just cranked it out so it was fun two months how many words is that a day I don't know we could do the math really quickly it's a 130,000 page book um and I, I actually keep a chart I want do want to release like a daily like word count some days I was writing 5,000 words other days I wrote 500 but uh that's a, that's a little over 2,000 words a day on average. So um, I think it was a really just steady pace and being quarantined definitely helped me achieve that goal. So thank you, COVID, huh? Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> a little bit, a little bit, right, a little bit. I'm not surprised that you wrote it that quickly because I felt like when I was reading it, it was just like action-packed and I loved it. Like it was just, okay, yeah. now all these yeah. pieces are coming together. And it very much for me felt like, like the Lord of the Rings, you know, when you get to the scenes where they're like doing yeah. the big battles and stuff. And uh, I mean, I just, I loved it. I thought it was great. It took me right back to those moments, which were some of my like first experiences with fantasy books um, was the Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit. Yeah. So for me, it was very nostalgic 
And I loved, yeah. I loved it. I loved those scenes. The intent, the intent of the series, you know, I was a diehard Tolkien fan growing up, but um, the idea of this series was to write an approachable Lord of the Rings, right? Because sometimes Lord of the Rings, to, especially modern day people, like going into a fantasy series, it's a lot to take in. It's intense. And I said, I want to pare it down a little bit and make something that's approachable for a non-fantasy fan, someone who wants to get into fantasy and just kind of poke fun, a story that can poke fun of itself and have fun. Yeah. Okay, so my question, did you know yeah. who you were yeah. going to kill right from day one? Or did that change yeah. over time? And No, that was, um, that was from day one. Early on, from when I started writing, I knew that was going to happen. Um, not when I conceived the character. You know, that character was one of, you know, most characters you develop. And when they hit the paper, they might change a little bit. Um, and because we're doing a spoiler interview, I'm just going to say it. Jim Bois, kind of, he just, if my, if my vision and my brain, my imagination is like a TV screen, he just kind of popped on screen. And that's how he was from the get-go. No changing. It's like he came from another dimension. And like, I didn't even write him. He just appeared. Um, so, but then as I started to plan the story and a lot of the themes, he was just such like a loving character. He loved with such a passion, every, all, all of this like family and this character uh, Red, he considered a brother. Um, and as I'm developing the story, it just kind of made perfect sense for him to show the ultimate expression of love um, to really, you know, sacrifice himself so that Red can live on. You know, Jimbo talks about his entire dream was to see the world. He became a wizard's champion. He was this banished scully and he achieved so much honor. And then, you know, Red's dream was really to like, you know, marry this princess, the classic fairy tale. And he saw his, his best friend on the cusp of that and about to lose it. So he said, you know what, um, let, me, let me express my love in the highest way that I can. And he sacrifices himself. So yes, from the beginning that was planned. I do allude to it earlier in the books very subtly, but it was always there. And it was very sad. It was a very difficult scene to write. I was so mad. It was just like, I, because I told you, I, I love Jimmy. You know, at the end of first book, when we were talking, yeah. you were like, who's your favorite character? Yeah. And everyone else liked Red or Fallon. And I said, <laughs> Jimmy, because of his fruits. And I'm a fruitaholic and yeah. all of this. And we talked about yeah. this big fruit. This, you said it would come up. And I kept going through the whole book. And I'm yeah. like, when is he going to use this big fruit? And yeah. And so he ends up, he ends up, that's, that's the plan all along. So it was, it was for the story and it, um, I think it really drove the message home and it did the character justice, which is most important. When, okay, so I have a question about that. And I, I, I love that yeah. that was his expression and like that theme um, of the ultimate sacrifice uh, in the name of, of love, you know, and brotherly love. And yeah. I was wondering whenever Fallon is getting his last gem and he gets like snatched away by Carthon and um, towards the end of that conversation, Carthon's like, you know, I didn't get that much time with Jimmy, blah, blah, blah. You know, I feel really bad about that. Can you tell him I said, hi, like, is that purposeful foreshadowing? Okay. I thought it was, it was really nice. Touch. I think, well, it, it was like, it, it was a little bit, uh, it was a little bit like slight foreshadowing and it was just a little bit that like, you know, Carthon's kind of passed on and he's like, he's let the worldly troubles that kept him down, uh, you know, they've kind of lifted away. You get that sense. He's a little bit more cheerful and at peace. He's literally at peace. Um, so he kind of in this new state, he's probably looking back and thinking, you know, 
man, that the Scully already had it figured out. Jim already had it figured out. He was at peace. He did cherish life. And so I think that was him kind of subtly like longing for like, I wish I did cherish it a little bit more while I was there. Um, so that, yeah, that was all kind of one subtle theme. So good, good catching that. Okay. Yeah, Aaron catches all these things. I'm just like, I just go with the journey and I'm like, I, I don't, this is the thing. I don't pick up all these little foreshadowings. You know, I'm like, oh, good, good. And I'm like, oh no, he died. It's like, yeah. yeah. I didn't catch it at the time of the scene with the well. I mean, I, I remember him saying that and I didn't think anything of it. Um, but I think like when it came back to me was when he's dying and then you're like, oh, he actually yeah. gets to go. It was kind of like a consolation. Like it made me, like, yes, I was sad and I cried. I like literally cried, but it gave me a little bit of consolation to know, oh, but he's going to go on and be with Carthon and they're going to, you know, have this time together. Yeah. I'd be curious to, to see, did you, did you catch at the very end of the book uh, when Red sitting by the fountain. Mm -hmm. Oh yes. Something. Oh oh yeah. The, sure. the fingers. The fingers. Oh so yeah. That he's, he's watching over them. He's yes. There. That that was that was perfect. And the question I have is, how much did Harry Potter? The end of in Harry Potter. You know when Harry Potter almost dies, and he's there at the train station with Dumbledore. How yeah. much did that yeah. scene influence? The Carthon scene because as I'm reading the Carthon scene and even with the final bite, I yeah, I felt Harry Potter-esque. Yeah, for sure. I can't think of a there's probably not a modern fantasy author out there who hasn't been influenced by Harry Potter to some extent. The same way J.K. Rowling was likely influenced by people like Tolkien, right? right. So um, Harry Potter was a huge influence for me. And I as I was getting to that scene, um, and I knew I always wanted to write it. Um, to where he kind of gets that bit of closure, closure with Carthon. Um, I knew I was like, okay, I have to be careful to, you know, this is going to be compared to the Dumbledore scene. But I felt like I had to make it like a little bit wonky, like I do in my world, like just to do something playful with it. And that's why they're seeing all these weird creatures from other dimensions and everything. So I said, okay, if I'm doing this, this idea that Rowling already did, I have to make it my own. Um, so it was it was definitely influenced. I don't think when I was writing it, I consciously thought, let me do the Dumbledore scene. It was as I started writing it and I went, oh, I've been influenced by the Dumbledore scene. <laughs> so that's that's kind of what happens. Well, okay. And I, I, that was another one of my questions about that scene. Um, well, I have two more questions. One was sure. you're referring to like all these other worlds that are happening at the same time. Yeah. And uh, for, for me, I was like, oh, one of, you know, you're describing our world, I think, in, in one of those yeah. scenarios, um, which was very interesting. Okay, so that's good to know yeah. that, yeah, in fact, you were doing that. Um, and then the other thing that I thought of immediately, I don't know why, well, maybe I do. I had to go back and look, though. Um, so in book two, in the ice temple, and with... Uh, is it Javers or I'm not sure how to, how to pronounce his name out loud because I've only ever yes. read it yes. on a page. Um, so yeah. for, um, for Javers, I was like, is this the same thing that happened? So like, you know, uh, I think, um, oh my goodness, um, the wizardess talk, uh, she talks about how water can be used as like a, like a dimensional door essentially um, to different places. Yeah. And then he's describing these very yeah. holy places. Okay, so that's connected. Is that the same? Is is that the same stuff that's going? Because I was thinking it's made out of ice, so that's why I water. Think, I think um, 
you know, Aaron, uh, Dr. Ahmed, you're very right to say Aaron is very perceptive because it's interesting. She, she picked out jobbers of all the characters I've written uh, uh -huh. across three books. So without spoiling anything, I will say we see jobbers again a couple times. He's this very mysterious character. Mm -hmm. and a lot of those questions I think you have will start to be uh, kind of, it'll be unraveled as to who that character was and how that comes into play, like all these worlds and everything like that. So um, even though we're doing spoilers in this interview, we're not doing future spoilers. So I will say keep reading. And <laughs> thank you'll, you. You'll thank you. <laughs> okay. Speaking well, my of, instinct was right that it, I'm on to something, that yeah. there's some connection there because, with these two scenes. Okay. You know, uh, Aaron, after we got done, we both got done and I was like, oh my gosh, you know, book three. Says, and Aaron says to me, she goes, hey, do you have a copy of book one? Because somehow she didn't have, I think I, I used had your give, Kindle. To yeah, she used my one. Kindle for book one. She says, do you yeah. have a copy of book one? I want to look something up. And I'm like, what do you want to look up from book one? Because, you know, this is me, zero perception of any, I just read a story and I go with it. And she's yeah. like, I want to look something up from the old woods. And I'm, and all I can remember is Boshi in the old woods in book one. I remember right. the conversation with Fallon saying that he was going to come back and clean the old woods of the dark spirits. That's all I remember. And I'm like, what do you want to look up from yeah. book one? Anyway, I sent it to her and she's all, I'm like, where are you getting this? You know, like, I'm just curious. Like, does she read it like one word, like literally like, Every word, like, duh, let's look at the duh. How did he meant the duh, <laughs> duh? Yeah, I mean, no, I just keep I mean, going. I'm a Sorry. genetic counselor and my part of my job, like what part of what makes me good at my job is picking up on patterns and picking up on like unusual pieces. Like this thing is not like the others, right? And so I think I do that in books, like right. Um, right. unintentionally. So yeah, and my, my question about the old woods, so I'll just go there now, <laughs> we're there. Um, okay, so yeah. there's a, <laughs> Fallon has a dream the first night that he's in the old woods and he sees a brother and a sister. Yeah, yeah okay. Um, I'm, and yes. I'm recapping for Shanaz and, and for the okay. listeners. But um, so uh, there's this dream. There's a boy and a girl, their brother and sister. They go and they find a sword. They're in, a, they're in the old woods and they find a sword in a stump, um, I guess, in a tree stump or in a tree and it's underground I think yeah. it sounds like it's underground um and this is like a holy place yeah. well then Jobbers whenever Fallon's talking to Jobbers he refers back to this that there's a holy place in the old woods and um that that was relevant to the conversation that he had with Bashi so um I was wondering okay when when we got to the and the reason why I looked this back up was because when we got to the end of book three and we know that the twins were a boy and a girl and so I'm wondering, are the twins Ooh. the same brother and sister from the dream? Ooh. Or related? You know, uh, I think, you know, we're not doing future spoilers. But yes, I, I know. Think, okay. I think okay. Erin's oh my gosh. Like a lead, Aaron, lead what? Detective. She's going to be lead <laughs> detective uh, for the Elsana world if the fan base continues to grow. Because, yeah, I mean, that's certainly from a reader's perspective. A little bit what I'm alluding to there, because we had just spoken, and actually the conversation prior, they had just spoken about, uh, I think, the soil sauna and everything, and which was a neuro, and then Fallon immediately has that dream after, and he kind of brushes it off. It's just a dream. Um, so, you know, I'm definitely 
potentially alluding to some things there. Um, some people would say a little heavily. Um, other people, you know, just they don't think about it like a minute like by me. the next chapter. So like me, I'm, um, I'm just like some connection. Yes. <laughs> okay. I'm just like oh, and ah. Uh. I I'm, like I'm really excited. I don't think I don't think that okay so this is just my I'm just going to throw out my my prediction even though I know you can't comment on whether it's true or not true um but <laughs> okay yeah. so I know though that Javer says that the warrior will of light will be born in the forest after Fallon clears it and he at the end of book three he hasn't cleared the forest and the, the twins are born so I don't think that they are the warrior of light, but somehow the, I think they must be related to the warrior of light. And I, they're crying at the beginning of that dream. So I think their mom might die um, at some point. I don't know. Maybe, Maybe I'm- These are all good theories. I won't yeah, indicate either the, way, but write it down. No, well, you got it recorded now. You, you can have ex- your theory recorded. So you can yes. say, I told you so to anyone yes. when this book is released. It wasn't going to kill Nim. What's the Harry Potter site? He did not say that, but this is my prediction. I know, but I mean, look, he's already taken Carthon from me, okay? And he's taken Jimboa from me. And if he wasn't going to kill Nim, now you're giving well, him an idea to kill Nim? The best authors do not kill, or they, well, they I, kill I will, without hesitation. I don't care about best authors. Well, I, I want I, my characters. Sorry, Christian. It's like, well, I... I, I I will say, um, very very different uh, perspectives on the on storytelling here, which is I do very much like. Um, <laughs> so uh, you know, one thing to say about the series, and I think I do say this, um, I think in that discussion with Jobbers, but you know, this this is what you're seeing, at least with the Warriors of Light and everything. This is definitely happening significantly farther into the future. If you got to remember the entire premise of this first trilogy, he's uh, Fallon's kind of like young Gandalf. He's not the chosen one by any extent. He's the chosen one's classic mentor who's on the come up. He's learning. So when these people come about, we don't know yet. We don't know when it's going to happen. A lot of things have to fall into place and we have a few more adventures to get there before they come around. But, you know, it's going to be a minute. It's not, you know, it's not going to be book four and it's like, all right, Warriors of Light, let's go. It's going to take some time. We've got a little bit more story to tell. So um, correct me if I'm wrong. I thought the trilogy was there was a prequel and a postquel kind of a thing. Like I thought there was going to be a prequel right. trilogy right. and then a trilogy that continues on. Can you give us the timeline for these trilogies? Like Yes, yes. I, I'd be happy to give you the timeline. So initially the intent was to do this kind of almost like the Star Wars method, I guess, primary trilogy or original trilogy. We're going to do a prequel trilogy and then uh, secondary trilogy, sequel trilogy, just like you said. Um, so because of just logistics and releasing the books and the way I wanted the story to flow, I felt like um, it actually just made more sense to just keep it all in the same series because it's so interconnected. And really, and because we're doing a spoilers interview, um, I can tell you this and I'll give you a very small snapshot into the next three books. So the next three books, it starts off with Bossador and he's, he's, an, he's a little bit older now, about, about a decade, and he's babysitting a pair of half Drakish and half Elvish twins. And they discover some very old journals in his castle and he, he recounts the tales through, uh, not quite Princess Bride, through, through a, um, uh, you know, there's a epilogue and, and a prologue and, a, um, and an interlude. He's telling the tale of uh, the legend Madreller 
and uh, Washborn a thousand years ago during the formation of the crown to these children. And this story kind of interconnects, uh, unbeknownst to the, our main characters, it connects to the greater story of Elsana. And I kind of allude to that in different ways and, and different events happen that were lost to history. So that is the next set, the next trilogy that we have coming. I've actually completed book four. It's in edit right now. I'm hoping to release it in March. And then I'm on the, I'm in the home stretch with completing book five right now. So again, quarantine has been very good for writing. And then, so the sequel trilogy, that's a little bit more in the planning phase, definitely a lot more of it's uh, in my head than on paper. But I will say that's when that's kind of end game where we're going to start to see a lot of these prophecies come to place and perhaps a familiar uh, wizard who is now an old mentor. I don't want to give any spoilers there, but uh, <laughs> that might come into play for the last three books. Okay, so the next three books are really a prequel told by told by Bassador yeah. to the twins, and that's the prequel is the three books, and then we're gonna okay, yay! So so super exciting. Yeah. And are you gonna call them gems of is are they all gonna be gems of Alsana and something, or you're gonna have a totally yeah? It's gonna be. I'm keeping the series title. Just for continuity, I've decided to keep the title Gems of Elsana all the way through, just because the core focus doesn't become the Gems of Elsana um, in the subsequent books, but they do impact the plot throughout some of the books. We see different things regarding the Gems of Elsana. They are mentioned and they're still relevant. And I just felt like rather than having all these different series, let's just keep it to the one that started it. And as long as it's relatively relevant, I guess, then I'm going to keep the series the same title. Now, I'm really curious with the gems of Elsana, you made a mention that Fallon has a greater affinity to the water gem. And uh, the yeah. other wizard, what was her name? Zara? Zarla. Zarla. Yeah, she had a greater affinity to the fire gem. Do you explain that? Or is it just something we just take for granted that, you know, some people, you know, are better singers and some people are better dancers or whatever, you know, that kind of thing? Yeah, I think it, it falls in line a little bit with just what you said. Some people are better singers and some people are better, you know, athletes or something like that. I've really leaned more towards having a, um, they, they have soft magic systems and they have hard magic systems soft magic systems are like, it's magic. They, they're doing what they do. There's some rhyme and reason to it. You know, it's not always do it machina, um, but you know, it's just kind of, it's magic. It's supposed to be a little bit mysterious. Hard magic systems are like, it's almost, sci it's like almost scientific. Like you only have this much that you can use. And it's like, it's based off of this, you know, resource. And it's like very, it's, it, it can withstand a critical analysis. For, I'm writing a fantasy, a feel good fantasy. I'm going with soft magic. It's having fun. Fallon likes the water gem and the air gem more because he just does. And that's the reason it's magic. And that's the end of the story for me. So that, that, that's where I am with it. Okay. The, um, the wooden pendant. Is there more to the wooden pendant? Oh, she's like. She's good, isn't she? Like, I, am, I am dropping seeds in a field. Like farm them later on. And she's digging them all up before, I, before, they, she's, can, she's good. before they can sprout. Go ahead, Aaron. Uh, well, so I, I'm just wondering if it had, in, my instinct is it has something to do with the water travel in the wells, 
but maybe it's something different. I don't know. I just felt like Carthon, when we're seeing him again in the well uh, or in the fountain, he kind of alludes to he had this very urgent instinct to get, it, you know, to find this buried treasure that ends up being this this wooden medallion. And um, everybody thinks it's just pointless. So I was just yeah. wondering what I, I, I it, it's enough for me to know uh, that there's future significance to it. So <laughs> yeah, I will say there, 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 potentially a future significance significance okay. to it so uh, well and, done i feel like i gotta write a little bit uh, more subtly just for erin everyone else <laughs> this has been going right over their heads by yeah like, i mean the, yeah on. like this that's is, something and right yeah like me i'm just like yeah. it's a wooden pendant a gift it's fine it's all good oh look you know and then it's <laughs> like Aaron's like, yeah. I got to know about this. And then there was this dream with these two people and there was this, and I'm kind of like, okay. Yeah. And I mean, another thing that happened, the key that he stuffs down, okay, this is in book two and they go, they're in the city because yeah. it starts with a V. Um, and is it red? Yeah. He steals the key, but then they like, don't they throw the key into this like pit where he- it's supposed to like come back at some random time? Yeah, I remember that. He, so uh, a little bit different. So, so uh, actually, it's uh, Bossler was given a, a knife by his father in the very beginning of That's the book. It right. has an orange mm-hmm. handle, and after his father passes away, he puts that down the well. Uh, Red uh, does swipe that master key, and as he thinks he's about to die at the end of the second book. He, he tosses the key away kind of like he had palmed the key he's like I'm just I'm gonna die a thief he's like he's ashamed of himself so he does toss it away at the end of the second book uh, are these two that objects one, uh, you know does so I think you have to read I think it'd be probably hard for them to get that key back considering it's in a valley okay. of flames that's sealed off on a remote island oh, but you know if another time well appears in the future or in the past of a series and someone else is there maybe it pops up it reminded me a lot of the ring the gold ring that just, you know, from the Lord of the Rings that just keeps coming back. Like you throw, yeah. you throw it over. Yeah, and I was thinking the knife, the knife in the well, now that you remind me it was a knife and not the key in the well. I was thinking that's going to come, when I read that, I was like, this yeah. is going to come back sometime important. Yeah, 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 yeah. So um, it's definitely, it's definitely something that I can, I can play with from a magic perspective later on in the series. I love that stuff because that's kind of like, I mean, I feel like JK Rowling did the same thing in Harry Potter. And I used to like read and reread and reread and reread because you're waiting for the next book to come out and you're going, oh my goodness, there's like all these clues, you know, and like the prophecy and I just felt this feels very similar to that too, which I mean, you've taken like two of my favorite book series and made me feel the same things in this series, which makes me really, really love this series and yeah. i just want yeah. everybody to read it i think, I think the uh, i think the goal setting out really it is interesting because i'd say the two most impactful fantasy series to me were definitely lord of the rings and then harry potter um and i really wanted to take it was really the the quest adventure aspect of uh lord of the rings and the hobbit and really meld it with that feel good vibe that harry potter has and that approachable like i'm sitting down to read this and I don't always feel like I'm reading like a history book of another fantasy world or something like I'm in the story, I'm feeling good and here's where we are. So mm-hmm. it is interesting that that's, you know, it, it's good to hear that it's coming across that way from a reader. It, yeah, for sure. Um, and if you keep killing off characters, then you're gonna like make people think about Game of Thrones. <laughs> so, 
Yeah, I, I, I actually, so to, to discuss that, I actually, um, I feel like part of these books, I was watching a lot of series like Game of Thrones and I'm referencing TV series now, but like Game of Thrones, Walking Dead, Sons of Anarchy, they're all very dark and they just like kill off characters left and right. And I feel, you know, when Game of Thrones did it, he, I mean, he's reading those, writing those books in like the 90s. Um, it was kind of like, that was a little bit more groundbreaking, I feel like, to kill off main characters and everything. But now it just became like a cliche plot device just to have, like, just to have the shock. And I, I didn't want to write a series just to make people upset. That's never my goal. Why, why just like kill a character just for the shock factor? So if anything, I want to move away from that. And really, if someone's dying it has a purpose and it has a reason and it's not just for the sake of like the shock so it is interesting that you mentioned that because that that did impact as much as a fan as i am of those series um i wanted to move away from that kind of storytelling i like the fun element i mean i like that your fantasy is just more chill and relaxed rather than you know it's like uh what do you call a victim one victim two you know another fatality another fatality it's not that yeah which is which is which is good yeah, because you can actually enjoy people. I mean, I'm yeah, yeah, I'm yeah. still kind of sad about Jimboa, and I mean, but it's just too compared to. I mean, I don't know. I mean, you could have just yeah. ended up with everyone dead except for Fallon or something crazy like that. I don't know. You, you know, I'm just saying. I could have, and it just wouldn't have been the same. Thing. And then it would, yeah, yeah it wouldn't, yeah. it wouldn't um, have been. I think it would have been a little bit more, uh, just a darker tone. And sometimes, you know, I have minor characters that get killed off and dark things happen and it stinks. So it does, ha- I do need to keep the like, the, the da- there is danger in this world. Otherwise you'd be reading the book in the whole time. You wouldn't be on the, on the edge of your seat at all during any scene if you didn't think it couldn't happen. Right. But to have that constantly, it almost, you become numb to the deaths after a while. Like um, by the time, spoiler alert for Game of Thrones, by the time like uh, Daenerys died, at the very end, you're like, okay, but I watched like 50,000 other main characters die on this show. And I feel like it just loses like that scream out loud factor. You're screaming at the TV. It's like, okay, well, I kill another one off. I'm done. So I feel like that when it does happen, when, when you do kill a character off, especially a main character after not seeing that many die previously, it has a, it has an impact on you. You're not desensitized to it at this point in time, at least in this world. Who is the, um, the villain they kill i forget the names of the characters i should have written it all down but the bad guy in the woods okay. or you know where where okay jimboa gives him the fireberries because he starts killing them with his bad poetry yes demazar demazar so, yes um, thank you demazar that was probably tell me about demazar because i just i loved his character because it was just i don't know I just, I just love this. I felt bad when he died. I, I felt bad that you killed Demazar because somewhere I'm thinking, no, there's hope for this guy. Maybe we can bring him into the light. Hey, that could have happened. Yeah. And then you just, I'm like, wait, I, he I, actually I... killed him? What? <laughs> <laughs> I yeah. Um, that was one of my favorite scenes to write in this book, if not all time. Um, there's certain things where you almost like my wife and I call it touching the ether when you see just like there's, there's scenes that have a magic to them in books and that one definitely had it. Um, and just so to kind of recap, he's this like this terrible evil monster who's having this existential crisis. He had kidnapped them. 
Um, and, you know, he's coping by writing poetry and it's funny because he's a terrible poet. Well, part of the reason the existential crisis that was inspired by, I get to, I knew they wanted to be kidnapped by a monster. And I'm like, I've already written like every baddie ever, not every baddie <laughs> ever, but like I've already had like horror scenes. Like, and I was like, I can't do this anymore. And I was like, what if, what if the monster, it feels the same way. He's like, I can't do this anymore. I'm over it. But he's truly awful. Like some of the things he describes. Right. And so it's just really fun to see this evil character going through this existential crisis. And, and then he has like parental issues and his brother was favored and he has this nervous breakdown in front of his captives who were chained up. And it was just like really great. It ended up instead of being a scary scene, like perfect comedy. It was like so much fun to write and to have it end in a very bombastic way. You know, I knew I wanted to have Jim Block kill someone in that way. I didn't know it was going to be so epic like that. But I think to have, um, so see this monster like kind of creep towards um, kind of self-realization and actualization and he's, he's getting better and he, and he accepts himself for who, for who he is despite his father hating him. And then he accidentally eats one of the fireberries and blows his head up. It's almost Quentin Tarantino-esque. Like it's the shock of like, oh my God, what just happened? Um, and, it, and it makes some, for some really good dark comedy. Um, and it was, a, it was, it just came alive in the character. It just, that was a chapter that was a lot of fun to write. I didn't take it that negatively, Shanaz. I was just like, by the, I mean, they'd already thrown the berries into the pot and yeah. then they realized that yeah. he's going through this situation. And then it was kind of like, oops, nothing we can do about it now, <laughs> you know? And then, right. No, I just, <laughs> yeah, you know, I just felt like not necessarily negative, but I just felt bad yeah, you can't do anything about it. And yes, he is evil. You know, it's it's one of those things that somewhere within you, you think there is hope. And then when he dies yeah. and they all escape is when you wake up and you think, no, 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 no. He was an evil guy, okay? Just because he has an existential crisis yeah. doesn't mean anything. He was an evil yeah. guy. He was having them as hostage. He needs to die. But somewhere in my brain, I just want to make everyone yeah. good. That's all. Well, I think I think Fallon Fallon expresses the same feelings. Like Red asking me, he's like, "Are you all right?" And then Fallon's kind of like he's thinking, like, "I find it, I kind of felt part of something. Like he was like right. part of this like healing process. Even though it's an evil person, he's Fallon's of the light. He's sympathetic. So." To have that death, yeah. I, I even felt the same way writing it. I was like, I kind of feel bad for this guy. And that's why I kind of pepper like reminders of like, oh, I had so much fun. Uh, you know, I when I killed that, all those villagers and he was like, we laughed, we cried. And he says, well, I laughed and they cried. Like he is really evil. Right. So I try to remind the character of that. Like if this guy gets his just desserts, don't feel too bad. So th that, that was the mindset with that scene. But it was, uh, it was cute. Like, and um the, there is this, um, I'm sorry, Christian, I don't remember all the names of your characters, but it was this really cute, lovable... I don't remember, Dr. Ahmed, I'll tell you something. I'm having the, uh, the first book re-recorded right now, an audio okay. book, and I'll be like, I'll talk, talk to the narrator and I'll say like, oh, what's that character's name again? It's a minor... I'm, I wrote the books and I've read them like 10 times each. 20 times each and I forget my own name sometimes so I no expectation to remember all of these different characters names okay. there's so many of them so there's a couple of okay so there's um one thing was in the old woods you know Fallon says he will come back yeah. and he will cleanse the old woods okay 
that's the extent of my foreshadowing. Okay, I don't go into Aaron's nitty gritty of stuff. The okay. the other <laughs> the other yeah. extent of my foreshadowing is there was a um, a really cute, lovable creature in the was it in the snow? A big creature in book two. Huffus? He was all Huffus, by himself. Huffus, yeah. Huffus, yes, yes. Yeah. Huffus, Huffus, yeah. Him, yeah. I loved him. And then when they left, he was like, "Oh, will you come back?" And I hope you come back. And there's always this, will they come back? And I just, that's the extent of my foreshadowing because I'm like, huh. Well, Jogger says that yeah. when Fallon is with the, once they, he finds the warrior of light and he has the sword, the sword will not be of use to them until they come back to an island. Now, I don't know if it's this that, that island. Oh, then that's what it is. Yay. Yeah. See, I have some foreshadowing well, in me. I mean, I'm, not like, I'm not like a zero. <laughs> so, you're, you're, you're jumping in there at first, which I can appreciate. Um, so, Hufus, yeah, I, I or Huffus. I, I always said it in my head, Hufus, but everyone like I talked to who have read it has gone Huffus. And I was like, well, that's fine, you know. Um, I'm going to say Hufus, though, because I can't get it out of my head that way. Um, but so, Hufus, one of my favorite characters. And before we dive in on that island and everything, Thing you just asked, Dr. Ahmed, my first interview with you. I don't know how we got into the topic, but like I mentioned, I, I like Bigfoot. I'm into Bigfoot. And you said, oh, do you think maybe in future books we'll see like a Yeti Bigfoot type creature? And at that point, I'd ri already written Hoopus and I was like, well, maybe hang maybe, out a minute yeah. and you might see him. Right, right, uh, right. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so Hoofus, yeah, he he's like this, he's an interesting character because he's been around for like literally almost forever thousands of years just on this island his his mother was a giant who had to leave and go fight in the wars in, in the beginning um and he's just been left on this island alone for thousands of years so whether or not Hufus has a has a will have a greater impact on the story we already saw he actually has an impact on the story in the third book the little tile he gave Bossador that protected his heart before he got stabbed yes um, yes just by chance right so um so whether or not this has a uh, bigger role to play in the story later on, it remains to be seen. But, you know, um, I'd be shocked to think Fallon, whether we see it or not, um, he, he's, I would imagine that Fallon's going to keep his promise and bring Hoofus those books and visit him on that island as frequent, frequently as he can over a century he's alive as a wizard. Yeah. Okay, cool. So how, um, I'm going to completely yeah. shift from books to business. How are your books doing uh, as far as sales yeah. goes on Amazon? They're doing uh, good. I, I, I've been excited about it. You know, I've released other books in the past and it's kind of, they've faltered and it's hard as an indie author when you don't have, you know, a publisher helping you with a PR team, getting you on, on major websites and reviews and, and mm -hmm. like top, top listed on Goodreads and all these things. And there's a lot of hustle and a lot of hard work that has to come along with it, but um, I was kind of so excited that with minimal marketing, as soon as I released for the freelance, you know, I saw not only sales, um, like significant sales, but also like significant readership on Kindle Unlimited, like the, in comparison to the other books, I was almost like, wow, I need to get more people reading the first book because so many people are reading the third one now. So to see that follow through on a series that you're writing feels really good. And it gives you confidence to keep, if, you know, if I had no readership, it's, it would be hard to say like, okay, let me write six more books. It's a lot of time. That's a lot right. of like time in your life you're giving up. But to see that right off the bat when you release this book, 
to see a spike in, in readership and people like buying the book and all these pre-orders, um, to see people so excited about it, uh, it feels really good. Um, so the, the books are doing well. Uh, you know, I definitely, it's given me um, the confidence to continue churning out the books as quickly as I can without sacrificing quality. Um, that's the big thing. Some indie authors will release a book a month sometimes, but you know, if it, if you know, this year, then going into the next year, I release a book every four months, I'm happy with that. And three books a year, considering how some authors take to write books, you know, I, I'm very happy with that. So they, they've been going well, uh, I'm, I'm happy to say. So Christian, um, I don't think you know this, but uh, Aaron knows this. I'm working on writing a book because I finally you decided- told me. You did tell me I did, that. okay. Yes. So the psychosis of COVID finally got to me. And um, yeah. so I finished my first draft, okay? And it's yeah. been sitting in my drawer yeah. for six weeks. Tomorrow marks six weeks and one day, I think. So I, I literally can take it out of the drawer tomorrow. Yeah. Any advice to, yeah. to me? I mean, to someone who's written a first draft, now it's six weeks. What is your advice to me? Mine is more women's fiction, yeah. own voices kind of thing. Um, well, I'm very excited to read it. Um, you know, if it reflects anything like your personality, I'm sure it'll be a very interesting and fun. Well, uh. I don't know if it's a fun read if you wrote something darker, but you know, I'm sure, I'm sure it's, it's a good book, plenty of personality in it. But so, so my advice, uh, you know, when you're editing into the editing phase is, you know, when it's your first time, you're going to notice you're gonna do a lot more editing. And it's the hardest thing is to see the forest through the trees because you're, you're like, you're in the middle of it. You're in the middle of the story. You're in the, all the words and everything. And you've read the same, you're going to have read the same paragraphs a um, hundred times over. And so then when you hand it to an editor or a beta reader or whoever, they're going to point something out like either a plot hole or uh, awkward sentence structure or something that doesn't make sense. And they're going to take you out of that forest. And you can finally see the trees and you're going to go, oh, how did I not catch that? So for me, I think it's just being patient. And um, when you're going through the book, I would say, look for different things as you're editing, like do an edit based around plot line, do an edit based around, you know, uh, just sentence structure, do it around dialogue, you know, focus on different things as you're editing. And it's really just refining, 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 take breaks um, and try to try not to make it work. You know, try not, to, if you're miserable doing it, it's that's going to reflect in your work because you're going to like glance over certain sentences or different you're like, I just want to finish editing this chapter tonight. It's work. Be excited to do it. And that'll mm -hmm. reflect in the final outcome. So that's probably my, that's the best advice that I can give. Okay. So do you, once you write and once you edit, do you go to beta readers and yeah. then you go into an editor or do you do editor and then beta reader? Cause I've heard both. Uh, you know, I think you got to do what works best for you. What I do is I, I, uh, I do draft of my edits and then I do, I give it to editors who like do deep dive sentence structure edits and, um, uh, plot edits. So one thing that is really that I, I want to impart on anyone who's, uh, you know, writing a book, be careful of who your editor is whether it's a content editor or it's a uh, someone who's doing syntax and, and sentence structure and grammar, um, because I've had good editors in the past where I feel like we're honestly giving honest feedback. And I think there are a lot of people, editors who think they know everything about the world and they just want, they'll just like first 
page into your book that will like rewrite, you need to rewrite the whole book. So um, you gotta, you gotta have someone who you trust, like almost with your life, really, to just be an honest and true person. You know, um, I think that's why it's important rather than give it to beta readers of people you find it online who, you know, sometimes they don't give the honest opinion. Um, maybe they're envious you wrote a book. Maybe they, uh, they're just being too nice. I would honestly give it to someone like Aaron and ask Aaron, like, please be as honest as you can, whether it's good or yeah, bad. Give it to I'm, a friend and family members as well. Yeah, Aaron has already has said yes to be my beta reader. And I'm expecting a copy with a whole bunch of lines struck out entire chapter struck out and and the final review is going to be yeah. start over <laughs> it's like, <laughs> like i hated it start Definitely, over i don't erin if it's a series erin will start guessing things that'll happen seven books later based on your first paragraph so be careful true. of that that is uh, true no so, i mean and you know and if you need me to be a beta reader i'm always happy to do that you know i, I probably lean to the nicer side of editors and everything so I was just I was just saying make sure whoever make sure whoever you do give the book to whether it's an editor or a uh, or a beta reader just make sure you, you trust them to be honest and um, to treat your work with care and not just be kind of um, dismissive about anything that they're they're gonna they're gonna appreciate it almost as much as you do so that's my big advice. Okay. Yeah, my biggest issue with personally for writing, and I don't know how you do it as an author. Because I, I don't even deal with errands, okay? I deal with regular people who can immediately find the entire plot in the very first line of the book. Be like, oh, based on, you said there was a cat. Oh, and then the whole story is like, I'm like, wait, I didn't say anything other than there was a cat. And Aaron will have the whole thing plotted out, right? How do you deal with the errands? Yeah. There you go, Aaron, you're going to be a new uh, name, like, you know, like, <laughs> You're gonna be a household name. How do you deal with the errands? The errands. How do you deal with the errands, and how do you keep I think, I th it alive? I think they're all good. I think different readership perspectives from all angles are really good. Um, you know, you want someone from a bird's eye view who's just taking it in as like a as a story, who's like, I like that. I didn't like this. And you want someone from not to call the errands a bug's eye view, but someone who's in the weeds someone who likes to pick apart those things because the errands help you figure out if you're being too heavy handed. Like if, and it's funny now we're saying the errands, but I like it. So we're going to keep saying it. So an errand will tell if an errand's saying like left and right, like um, this, I can already tell you're going to do this. And I can tell you you're going to do this with a degree of certainty. It might tell you to say, okay, let me um, reel back my foreshadowing to be a little bit more subtle just so that errands don't know exactly what's going to happen. Maybe they have a question. That's something to keep in mind. But different kinds of readers are incredibly important. Cool. Yeah. yeah. Well, and like, you know, I will say like, it doesn't affect my desire to continue reading. I think there's some people out there that if they think that they have predicted the entire plot by like the first chapter, they, they may just put the book down. But me, I'm like, I want to keep reading to yeah. see if I'm right. So, you know, <laughs> it's not... Like yeah, it doesn't affect yeah. my, um, yeah, yeah, I would still pick up the series. For me, I would still read just to go on the journey. Even if I knew yeah. what was going to happen, even if you told me from day one, I'm just going to tell you, here's this book. Carthon dies at the end of book two. Jimboa dies at the end of book three. And there are yeah. reasons for this death, but here's this journey. I would still read it 
And I think the only thing that would change for me when I'm reading those, uh, reading it with knowing that is somewhere in my heart would, I would be more selective towards loving Carthon and Jimbua more than yeah. I, I would have read it before I knew they were going to die. Like, so when I reread Gems of Alsana, I'm going to be reading Carthon's lines twice, almost like, yeah. like I know I'm going to lose him. So I want to cherish him yeah. more while I have him. Right. And read it that way. But I'm never, it's right. never going to be, well, I know the ending, sorry. The only time I really felt that way, it's really, really felt like, oh my gosh, was, so Harry Potter, okay? Here's the story. Book seven comes out, okay? And I hadn't read it yet. I had the book, but I was very adamant that I was going to read all six books before I even started seven. That was my Harry Potter thing. So when book seven came out, I started book six as a second read. So as I was working through book six, and then I'm on a phone call with my niece, who's not even into Harry Potter. She doesn't even read. And I'm in this phone call and she's like, Harry Potter died. I mean, oh no. Yeah, you can imagine. I mean, I was livid. Like I have never considered breaking off my relationship with anyone like, and I love her and I love <laughs> I my niece. It. I, it. I, I have loved my niece, but I was pretty much ready to never talk to her ever again until my nephew, <laughs> her brother, who is a <laughs> huge Harry Potter, Harry Potter fan. I was like, I'll never forgive yeah. your sister, you know, blah, blah, blah. And he's like, look, I've read Harry Potter. You just have to trust me. You know, she doesn't, re- you know this, just you have to trust me read it it will be worth it just just trust me and read it and then and then after i read it somewhere i was able to forgive her but i'm still not able to for- that was the only exception i'll make but if someone told me Carthon and jimbo are gonna get, die eh. she doesn't get as good birthday gifts as your nephew now is, is the bottom line he gets the better birthday <laughs> gifts. is that is that it she doesn't get birthday gifts <laughs> not as good <laughs> it's like no um, birthday gifts for you um I, I, I want to mention one thing, I, you know, as we've been talking, I just noticed um, you have the gentleman, is that a gentleman in Moscow facing out on your bookshelf behind yes, you? Yes, it is. I haven't read it I yet. I think I caught the cover. Yes, I haven't read it yet. Okay, either. so as a writer, as a writer, I read that uh, this year in quarantine. Um, so I will say, um, whether you like the plot line or not, I could see how the plot's not for everyone, but the actual writing, the prose, is some of the best fictional prose I've ever read in my life. So as a writer, as you're about to go through these edits, I would say, take a look at that book, read that book. And even though the story, again, the story, some people might find it a little bit slow, but it's a, it's a slow burn that builds on itself. Um, it is some of the most colorful and eloquent writing I've ever read in a fiction book. So I would say, um, I, I, I definitely recommend that that's you if you're going into an edit or to anyone listening who's interested in writing, if you want to see what high caliber prose is to compare yourself to, to try and strive for, um, I would recommend that book. And that's one that I think touches the ether a little bit, like I mentioned before, it touches something special that at least in terms of writing that um, is very impressive. So I just wanted to shout that book out because I saw it on well, the shelf. No, thank you. I, I got it because people recommended it that it was just brilliant writing. Yeah. And uh, the woman at Barnes and Noble yeah. told me that 
she hardly ever, ever, ever rates a book five stars. And she says, this one is a five star. And I thought, no, I definitely yeah. want to read that's, it. And I that. like slow burns. I'm not, I don't need the go, 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 go. Yeah. I love it when a character is just yeah. slowly built up. I don't even care if the story's moving. I, I'm very character driven. I just love my characters. And so, yeah, yeah. So even if a character is walking down the street and nothing's happening, but you're building in with, you're really getting a feel for the character and how they're walking and all their memories they're carrying just by walking down the street, I'm okay with it. Yeah, right. Right. Yeah. And I think that lends to the current way people watch um, or, or I was going to say watch, but read books or just ingest content in general. An early lesson for me regarding that, uh, uh, you know, I remember I came home from college one year and I, I somehow I was watching The Walking Dead. I mentioned it before on this podcast and in that show in its prime, it was, it was a really uh, engrossing show. And when I left, it became, I went back to college and I found out my parents and my little brother got obsessed with it. And it wasn't a show I would ever think they'd bond over. But I remember every week they'd want to get on the phone with me and talk about it. And my mom would get on the phone and say, did you see the way this character developed and the thing they said, the way they placed the cup down or something like that. And my dad would get on the phone. He'd be like, did you see the way Daryl threw the grenade in that tank? And so it was kind of, they were watching the same episode, but it was just such a lesson to me that the takeaways were so different and they were watching it for vastly different reasons. Um, and so that was just a lesson to me that, you know, as you're writing, people are going, some people are going to enjoy the action more, some people character development. And that's just something to keep in mind as a writer, I think. And that yeah. is another one of my favorite uh, medias of like that show, uh, The Walking Dead. I love it. I feel like we have like similar tastes. So yeah, 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 yeah. It's, uh, I haven't watched the last few seasons. I think after a few uh, cast changes and everything I kind of lost interest but again in that prime that show was absolutely gripping um, and, and some of the concepts in it and I think that show does a good job of you know having characters that if someone was to dress up as that character on Halloween you would know right away and that's how I want I like to structure my characters like they're all very distinct they have a certain weapon they like they have a certain dress and a certain style and like it's not just you know uh, a bland cast and all cloaks and wearing the same exact thing. It's just, they, they really, they make their characters pop, especially in its prime. So what are you doing for marketing? And like, what, I mean, clearly, I think this is an, an ageless book, in my opinion. Um, but is there a particular audience yeah. that you are targeting? Um, not particularly, you know, I wrote it to be a, uh, for a, you know, for a wide ranging audience. I think something special to me growing up regarding, uh, you know, I mentioned Lord of the Rings and Harry Potter, you know, my dad uh, handing me The Hobbit as a kid, you know, and that we could bond over that was really important and that he could feel comfortable giving me that book. And then the same as when my mom would come home with the new Harry Potter book, the second I finished the last page, she was picking it up. And so um, I think when you're writing something like fantasy, that's just supposed not, not supposed to be fun. Fantasy can be whatever you want, but I think I like it to be fun. I think it's important that something families can, can enjoy together. So in terms of marketing, um, you know, I definitely point out that it's fun filled and, and good for the family and everything. Um, and it's a little bit difficult because, you know, 
books for kids, you can really drive the message home and say, this is for kids and books for adults, you drive at home and mine's kind of in, in the in-between. So I think just going with your normal advertising and getting the word out on things like social media and creating content, people would be interesting and, you know, relying on, on fans like you two to just actually tell people like, hey, I read this good book. Um, that seems to be working so far, it's gonna take time. But, you know, as far as like with kids, there's some violence and some, some parents might be comfortable handing this book to a nine or 10 year old based on the content they share with their kids. Other parents might wait till their kids like 13 or 14 and it's not my place to say. So that's why I just say, you know, uh, family friendly and just kind of let people go from it from there. But I have had a lot of feedback parents saying my, my, you know, my 12 year old son will absolutely love this book. My 13 year old daughter absolutely loved this book. So it has been, it has achieved its goal of kind of being a, a family oriented uh, series. And I can second that because I recommended it to my brother, my sister-in-law, my brother-in-law, uh, my nephew, and my two nieces. And the nephew and two nieces are in high school. But if I would, if I had anybody yeah. in my life that was like middle school, I would still recommend um, for for them if they like fantasy um, or if they're just wanting to get into fantasy and reading. Um, so I, yeah, I I totally think it's a family-friendly book. I think you really achieved that. Uh, if you had a fan site like you know, like Pottermore or whatever, what would you call it? Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's a good question. Um, I don't know. That's a good, I can't think of a snappy name on the spot, but like it probably, I can't just say gems, gems of Elsa. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe booyata.com I think would be a, hey, a good one. Uh, da, 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 yes. Yeah. So uh, I, have, I have thought about doing some kind of Wikia or site where people can reference and deep dive some of the things, but um, just being able to flesh out the entire world on a website and do that would detract so much from uh, writing the books. And it is, on, it is on like kind of the backlog to at least maybe do a Wikia at some point that people can reference. If they're like, so, you know, Aaron doesn't have to borrow a Kindle from Dr. Ahmed, she can just go on you know, booyata.wikia.com or whatever, and look up something about the old woods. But again, it would take so long and so much effort to write it that right now I'm focused on writing some of the books, getting the series stood up, and then maybe at some point write the actual website. But I think that's a good question. I mean, personally, I think that this is a series that lends itself really well to like movie um, or things like that, you know, video games, stuff like that in the future. So I hope that the word really gets out about this because I would like to watch that movie. And, you know, I'm, I'm sure there's other people out there that would love it. But I, I really like, I can't even express to you like how wonderful this series is and, and how much I enjoyed it. I really loved the first two books. The third book was my favorite. And usually series like they, you know, the first one's always your favorite. This was just like right now. The third one's my favorite, and I say right now because I know you have more. So like I don't know, maybe the next one's gonna be my next favorite. I'm not sure, but I love them, and they're they're wonderful. Yeah, I so so commenting on a couple things. I think it's interesting. People, a lot of people say that like this would make a good TV series, and that's definitely how I, uh, you know, I think I almost envision it. Like, what would this look like in a TV scene? Like when I'm writing certain scenes, because I'm I'm very much inspired by music. A lot of the things I write, you know, I'll be just listening to a good song and it could be anything from a classical piece to like a Fall Out Boy song. And like, it just hits right. And, I'm, you know, whether I'm walking in the woods or in the car and it inspires a scene and it's what I'm envisioning is almost something that would be better served on TV because there's a lot, you know, there's music behind it and it's 
an action sequence or whatever it is, um, or a movie trailer for the book, you know, um, that's what does it. So I think that comes across in the writing. It's very visual. I have had that comment quite a few times before with the series. Um, the other thing you mentioned, you know, I think, you know, a lot of people are saying are really enjoying this third book. It's been a favorite so far, just because again, there's been so much buildup um, and so much has been planned for this third book. I'm kind of letting it all happen um, in terms of this trilogy. And it does make, it made the fourth book a little bit scary to write. Like I got to follow that um, with a whole <laughs> new cast of characters. So I will say this fourth book, although you're not going to have the same love for the characters right away because they're new. Um, I really tried to come out swinging harder than I did with, you know, the first book of Gems of Elsana, where there's a lot of building where the world's established and fourth book, you know, we're hitting the adventure and we're hitting it hard. So I'm hoping people after the third book, pick it up and find that they enjoy it almost as much as the third. For me, actually, I like the second book the best. Sorry. <laughs> I just, I've had people say that too. Yeah. I, for me, I think the reason I liked the second book the best was because it was so many different characters, so many different creatures, so many different worlds. Uh, third yeah. book was very yeah. epic. You know, you had the war going on and I'm not a war yeah. person. So I was just like third book became this, yeah. okay, it's all coming together. Everyone's got to fight and I'm not that. But the second book had all these, I love that. What was that lizard Island or whatever, where they, had this, they were all, Monsters, yeah. yeah, and it was just brilliant. I just, such intellectual yeah. lizards. I'm just kind of like, that was so, that was yeah, great. So, so to comment on the second book, uh, I, you know, I, the first book is like, let's, let's do a classic fantasy quest, but like we start to play with the classic fantasy and poke fun at it. Second book, the, the, the motto, the theme in my head was like, let's get weird. Like, let's break away from classic fantasy and kind of, you know, you think of almost like Darwinism where he talks about distinct, um, you know, uh, species became very distinct on different islands because of the way they evolved. I thought of that as the Magpie Isles. Like they have like all these uh, races and everything evolved in very distinct ways. So I said, I got to get weird with it. And then for the lizards, I have to give to my wife. Um, I said, you know, I was planning the book and I said, yeah, one island. What do you want on the island? And then she like, she didn't even like think about it. She went giant talking lizards. And she said, but they're like, they have like posh British accents. And I was like, okay, that's so weird. How do I fit that into the story? And I hadn't released, um, I had, and then as I started thinking about it, I was like, oh, what if they're like these advanced lizard people who are almost like Victorian era-esque and they're on the cusp of like the scientific revolution and they have uh, firearms. Um, and then, so that's why I was like, that's gonna be an epic scene. Um, as I started to build on it, and that's why I started to foreshadow it through the first book. It's like Red claiming, no, I heard there's lizards on the Magpie Isles that talk, and people dismiss it. So that's what made such a great scene. Yeah, so that was uh, my thing. So my question is, if you were to, if you're going to be finishing like three books a year, I mean, you could potentially finish three or two books a year. I mean, no matter what, at the rate you're going, very likely finish Gems of Alsana in three years. Yeah, maybe sooner. So because uh, uh, as an indie author, the, the one of the few strengths we have and why the indie scene has been blowing up is because we're not in the normal publishing process where, uh, you know, the editor's got to get it and it goes through all these rounds of um, 
editing and rewrites and cover being choose uh, being chosen and then distribution takes a massive amount of time and they 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 set the release date for the book so far out so some of the biggest fantasy series in publishing a lot of the times that that a good cadence like a fast cadence is one a year so one of the uh you know kind of the weapons in our arsenal as an indie author is we're not as constrained by that so we can get three out in a year and in the era of binge watching and binge reading things, it's very helpful. So to answer your question, my plan right now, 2021, I hope to release all three of the next books through the entire year. So there's hopefully, yeah, Aaron's clapping. So I'm aiming for March for the uh, the, the fourth book. Um, so that so I'll be out relatively soon. Um, the uh, fifth book, maybe around July-ish, August, maybe probably July though, maybe even late June we'll see how it goes and then uh end of the year for the next one and then last trilogy hopefully all released by 2022 so that's the tentative plan right now life happens you know uh things get in the way sometimes i write quicker than i expect so we'll see we'll see how it goes wow that's yeah that that's exciting a lot of books to read a lot of books to read right (laughs) um Aaron, do you have anything for Christian before we call it quits or? No, just thank you for writing this wonderful series. I've really been enjoying <laughs> it. So, and I'll continue to enjoy it. Yeah, yeah absolutely. It's good to finally meet you on Instagram plenty. And um, it's, yeah. it's good to always meet someone who's keeping me on my toes in terms of writing and, and, and making sure I'm following through on all those hints and foreshadowing. So uh, it's been great talking to you. And as always, it's been great talking to you as well, Dr. Ahmed. Um, I'm very excited to read your book. I hope I get to be at least a beta reader for it or I'd accept being an ARC reader as well. Absolutely. Um, So you just let me know. But it was great talking to you both. And wasn't that fun? I hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. I will put a link to the Gems of Elsana trilogy in the show notes. We hope you are looking forward to Midorian Sales coming out in March 2021 as much as we are. Before I go, I want to talk a bit about a great audiobook app. Libro.fm lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore. Choose from more than 150,000 audiobooks, including New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers around the country. With Libro.fm, you'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there, you know the name, but you'll be a part of a much different story, one that supports community. Listeners of this podcast can get a two-month audiobook membership for the price of one month. Go to Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and enter code LLTB podcast. With each listen, take pride in knowing that you're supporting local bookstores. I'll add the links in the show notes. If you loved this episode or any of my previous episodes, please take a moment to write me a review on Apple Podcasts. Please share this podcast with your family and friends and through your social media channels. Join the conversation with me on a new app called Swell. My tag on Swell is at Bookish Podcast. It's an audio app for podcast listeners like yourself. You will find something there that will interest you that you can interact with. And it's a great way to chat with me. Check it out. You can reach me through email. My address is livingalifethroughbooks at gmail.com. My website is shanazahmed.com. That is S-H-A-H-N-A-Z. 
A-H-M-E-D.com. The opening and closing music to this and all my previous episodes was composed by my husband, Brad Flavik. I'm Dr. Shanaz Ahmed with Living a Life Through Books, signing off. Remember to water the seeds within you. It's time. <laughs> <laughs>